Lord God, um, we thank you that even as we look over this past week of our lives, uh, we can see your hand at work. We thank you for the graces that you have shown us. We thank you for the mercies that you have shown us. Uh, we thank you for the ways that you have steered us. Some of us, uh, it's been an abrupt um, steering for our benefit and for your glory. We thank you for that. For others, Lord Jesus, you have come softly and tenderly to us. We thank you for that as well. We thank you that you are at work in our lives 24-7. You, you are relentless, Lord. You are faithful when we are faithless. We praise you and we thank you for your presence, your work, your voice in our lives. And Lord, it is your voice above all that we need to be listening to. And I pray now as we open your word that your voice would go forth. This is your word after all that the authority of what you have revealed would land on our hearts and in our minds, and Lord, that you would do your work this morning. I pray your help as I preach, and I pray for each and every person listening, Lord God, that we would listen well, as Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 8. Thank you for this time. We pray your help. Amen. Almost 30 years ago now, I had the great privilege of hiking uh, the West Coast Trail, the full length of the West Coast Trail out in British Columbia um, with my brother and with a couple of our friends. We were out on that trail for the better part of five days. And at one point of the trail, in one point of our journey, we came to the edge, the top edge of a cliff that descended straight down to the ocean about 40 feet or so. And at the bottom of that cliff, there were two things. First of all, there was the little dirt trail that we were trying to get to to continue our journey. And secondly, there were crashing ocean waves, crashing pretty violently up on the rocks down below there. The only way down that cliff was to rappel down lean back and put your feet on the rocks and rappel down um, on a rope that someone had tied to a tree at the top of the cliff there. Well, with the waves crashing down below as I looked at that and with the sheer vertical angle of the cliff, I started to feel quite anxious personally. I tried not to let on, uh, but I felt quite anxious. I had no experience with this sort of thing. It was out of my wheelhouse altogether. So my brother and our two friends, they had done this before. They went down the cliff first, and they did very well getting to the bottom one by one. And then finally, it was my turn. And I remember as I leaned out, it took some encouragement from the other three down below. As I leaned out, I was feeling anxious. My heart was pounding. My legs were feeling weak. I was just utterly lacking in confidence, but all the while, down below, my brother and, and our friends were egging me on. They were encouraging me. They were telling me that I had this, that I could do this. And with their encouragement, finally, I did it. I landed safely, and it was never a happier moment when my feet touched safely on that dirt trail down below. You know, friends, there's nothing like being encouraged to go on when you are in the thick of it, 
Some of you have come in this morning and you are in the thick of it. There's nothing like being encouraged to go on. When, when you're in a crisis or when you're in some sort of trial in your life, it can make all the difference, can't it? Having someone alongside you to coach you, to encourage you, to reassure you, to inspire you to keep going forward. Well, the church in Smyrna, there's uh, the picture of, that's not the cliff that I descended, but it's a reasonable facsimile. Uh, The church in Smyrna found themselves in a crisis situation that for them was about to get worse, in fact. But there was one who had already repelled down the cliff, so to speak. There was one who stood in their midst, encouraging them, instructing them, reassuring them motivating them, giving, him, giving them promises. And what was his name? His name is Jesus. His letter of encouragement to the church of Smyrna begins at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus says, And to the angel, remember we talked last week about how each church has an angel, uh, like a guardian angel, to the guardian angel of the church in Smyrna. Now today... This city of Smyrna is in the vicinity, in fact, it's called Izmir in Turkey. In fact, Charles texted me just before the service and reminded me of that because he lived in this part of the world for quite a while. When this letter of Revelation was written, Smyrna was known as the crown or the flower of this part of Asia Minor. Smyrna was a very beautiful place. It had a lot of fertile land in the area. And Smyrna had been the birthplace of the famous writer Homer. Not Homer Simpson, but Homer. (laughs) Homer who wrote the Iliad and who wrote the Odyssey as well. Very well-known, famous uh, pieces of art that are literature. So that's a claim to fame of Smyrna. Homer was born there. We also note that the first century city of Smyrna was very loyal to Rome. In fact, as Grant Osborne has pointed out in his commentary on Revelation, because of its proven loyalty to Rome, Smyrna beat out 10 other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the Roman emperor Tiberius. It was a great honor to the city. Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna. And notice very carefully, friends, notice very carefully how Jesus identifies himself in verse 8. He says, first of all, the words of what? The first and last. Jesus identifies himself as the first and last. Now here... I want to explore with you three significances of this phrase, first and last. First of all, there is a local significance to this phrase, or a significance that has to do with Smyrna itself in its first century context. Listen, on the coins that circulated in first century Smyrna, there was stamped this phrase, First city 
of Asia in size and beauty. First city. Well, Jesus knows about this boast of Smyrna as first city, and Jesus makes sure here to tell his church that, in fact, he is first. Amen? He is first. The city is not first. Jesus is the first. He is the first and the last. Secondly, along with the local significance to that phrase, first and last, there is also, of course, a deeply biblical significance to the phrase. So in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh, God of Israel, the Father God himself, he identified himself in the book of Isaiah as first and last in a number of places. So when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, calls himself first and last here in Revelation, what's he doing? He's identifying himself in breathtaking fashion. He's identifying himself with the Father who used that same language in the book of Isaiah. As Jesus identifies himself this way, the first and the last, he is identifying himself as none other than the sovereign Lord of all of history. The sovereign Lord of all history. And then along with the local and the biblical significances of this phrase, first and last, there is also the third personal significance for you and I. The question we ask here is this question. What was the very first? Was the 1867 Confederation of Canada first? Of course not. It doesn't go back nearly far enough, does it, to be first? Well, what about the founding of England in the year 927? No, that doesn't go back far enough to be first. Well, what about the creation of the world? The creation of material existence. Was that the first? And still the answer is no. Jesus was first before anything. Isn't it a mind-blowing thing to think about? Jesus was first before anything. No matter how far back we can conceive, stretching our minds, Jesus was before all of it. He is first. And he is last. James Hamilton puts it like this, nothing will endure longer than Jesus. He is last, first and last. As for you and I, friends, we live out our days in between the brackets of Jesus, who is the first and the last. I really appreciate how Daryl Johnson describes this. Here's what he says, quote, In saying that he is the first and the last, Jesus is telling the disciples in Smyrna and telling you and me that our lives are bracketed or boundaried, not by the decisions and actions of Caesar, not by the rise and the fall of Rome, nor by the rise and fall of Canada. 
Our lives are boundaried by him, the first and the last. Whatever, whatever else happens in our history, says Johnson, and whatever else happens in my history, Jesus is there as the first word, and Jesus will be there as the last word. He has the last word always. And Jesus is here, friends, in the middle with us right now with the word that gives life. Amen? So Jesus identifies himself. He identifies his exalted glory. I hope we see him as glorious. He, ex- he identifies himself this way in verse 8 as the first and last. But then further, watch this, further he identifies himself here as the one who died and came to life. And again, with this phrase, we have a local, a theological, and a personal significance. So the local significance of the phrase, who died and came to life, is found in the fact that the city of Smyrna had died, in essence, it had died in the year 580 BC, long before this letter was written, It had died when it had been sacked and captured by a Lydian king. But then the city had been rebirthed. It had been raised back to life a few centuries later as it was completely rebuilt. So for those living in Smyrna during the time when this letter was circulating, Jesus' self-identification here as dead but raised to life Certainly, this would resonate at the local level. The city had been dead, and it had come back to life. But then the second theological significance of this phrase, died and came to life, is, of course, very obvious, isn't it? It's very obvious, and it's actually the most important. Jesus had died a divinely orchestrated, atoning death, on the cross, only to be raised in divine power three days later. He had died and he had come back to life. And this theological significance is then connected directly to the personal significance. Hallelujah to this. Since death could not hold Jesus Christ, since death has no power over Jesus Christ, since Jesus is bigger and stronger than death, we as believers who are in union with him know and have the assurance that death will have no power over us. So for him to say that he died and came to life gives us hope, doesn't it? So friends, with all of this, let's not miss verse 8. We're only at verse 8. We have a few more verses to go through. But this verse sets up the rest of the letter to Smyrna in a very powerful and in a very life-giving kind of a way. The almighty, eternal one who is addressing this church is first and last, and he is the one who died and came to life. He is glorious, and he is authoritative. Next, Jesus rehearses the picture of his church in Smyrna in verse 9. 
the picture. He says, I know. We talked about this last week. How does Jesus know? Well, he knows because he walks among his church. He's in our midst right now. I know three things. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, these three things here, tribulation, poverty, and receiving slander, are probably not things that would rank high on our list of attractive features or strengths of a church, right? Pastor, what are the strengths of your church? Well, we're getting buffeted with tribulation. We're dirt poor, and people are slandering us. (laughs) But listen, friends, what character, what character does a church take on as it follows its master, Jesus Christ? It takes on the character of the suffering servant who is the head of the church. Are you with me this morning? The church takes on the character of the suffering servant who is its head. The church who is listening to the voice of Jesus and following Jesus might just start to look like Jesus. Exposed to tribulation, nowhere to lay its head in poverty, and slandered. I wonder here in North America if we, as the church of Jesus Christ, have ever paused over or have ever considered carefully the desire of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10. Church, is it our heart's desire with the Apostle Paul that we would share Christ's suffering? Becoming like him in his death. For the church in Smyrna to be slandered, for them to experience tribulation, for them to experience poverty, was in fact a participation in Christ. A participation with the head of the church, with the suffering servant. Difficult for them? Of course it was. You bet it was. But there was also glory here because they were being counted worthy to suffer for the name. But oh, friends, how the voice of Jesus brings comfort to his suffering church here. He says, listen to what he says, I know, listen to Jesus, I know your tribulation. The Greek word here in the original text that's translated into English as tribulation is a word that describes distressing trouble 
a crushing, squeezing pressure, a marked affliction. This church in Smyrna was going through a crushing crisis. And Jesus Christ, the head of the church, knew all about it. When he says here, I know your tribulation, it's a way of saying that he has been present with them through the tribulation as their shepherd and that he will continue to be present with them, walking among them. I know your tribulation. This is a tremendous comfort to the church. But now notice in this verse the crushing crisis that the saints in Smyrna were experiencing. It was linked to a group of people causing trouble. A group of people who had been saying that they were Jews, claiming that they were Jews, but who actually were operating in what Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan. What was going on here? Well, the best we can gather about the situation of the church in Smyrna is this. We said earlier that there was a fierce loyalty to Rome in this city. Everyone in the city of Smyrna was required to participate in Roman festivals, in Roman idolatry, in the worship of Roman gods. Everyone was required to participate except for Jews. Jews had been given an exemption from such participation. Jewish people were still to honor the emperor, honor him as the emperor, but unlike everybody else, they were exempt from revering the emperor as a god. Christians obviously desired also to be exempt from the worship of Roman gods, but there was a general suspicion afoot about this new religious sect called Christians. There was a suspicion about them, and the group of Jews that are mentioned in this verse, they were capitalizing on this already existent suspicion. These Jewish people were stepping in to prevent Christians from being exempt from worshiping the Roman gods. These folks were slandering the Christians, probably due to the fact that many of their Jewish kinfolk were converting out of Judaism and into Christianity, and these people didn't like that. And so they're slandering the Christians. The tribulation and the slander that the church of Smyrna was experiencing was due to this interference from the synagogue of Satan. And in this same verse, Jesus mentions also, doesn't he, the poverty of this church in Smyrna. No doubt this poverty had come about because patriotic Romans and probably also this Jewish group would simply not do business with Christians. Businesses run by Christians were being boycotted in Smyrna, and it was devastating to the pocketbook of the Christians. But Jesus knows all about their poverty. He knows all about our poverty if we are impoverished. And he reminds them here, notice, what does he remind them of? That in fact, 
they were rich. Rich with what? Well, not with money, but rich because they had the gospel. Rich because they had Father, Son, and Spirit. Rich because they had the fellowship of brothers and sisters, fellow strugglers in the faith. Rich because they had the assurance, and we have it too, that the last word on their current situation would come from the first and last, Jesus Christ himself. As the church of Jesus Christ, friends, we are obviously always fabulously wealthy, aren't we? Even if our pocketbook says different. Smyrna was a church that was going through it. This church was experiencing a crushing pressure. They were poor. They were being slandered. Why? All for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be, what? Persecuted. All for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. For their commitment, for their godly lives. And now here is the risen Jesus on the scene blessing them with assurance and bolstering them in confidence and giving them encouragement. Now, we need to pause here before we go forward in the text. We need to pause to say this, that of course, when a church experiences pressure, when a church experiences trouble for its faithful witness to Jesus Christ, it's easy to escape that pressure All you have to do to escape the pressure is to stop being faithful and to give in to the cultural pressures and to ignore God's commands and go with what culture dictates. Or to escape pressure, the church might do as many churches have done and put the focus on the self-esteem and the self-improvement of people instead of declaring people to be proud sinners who desperately need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. There are ways for the church to escape pressure and to escape hardship, but we're not going to be faithful to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, if we go in those directions. Well, in verse 10, Jesus gives to the church of Smyrna the prescription to persevere amidst the crushing pressure that they were experiencing. The prescription to persevere. And here he issues, notice, two commands to his church. Here's the first command. Do not fear. It's a command. Do not fear. Just as it was in verse 8 when we saw that the phrase first and last had its roots in the book of Isaiah, so here with this phrase, do not fear. On more than one occasion in Isaiah, God told his people Israel, do not fear. 
Well, here in Revelation 2, Jesus is taking up the same phrase and he's applying it, notice, not to ethnic Israel, but to the church that is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Do not fear. Notice what you are about to suffer. Notice very carefully, church, in our passage, the church has already been described, hasn't it, as facing crushing pressure. We've already seen that. Crushing pressure was already the reality for them. But now Jesus, he pulls no punches here. He tells the church that they are about to suffer even more. Notice he does not say here, well, church, if you engage in such and such a strategy, then this pending suffering can be avoided. He doesn't say that. He says, rather, you are about to suffer even something even greater than you already are suffering. Things are going to get worse before they are going to get better. Jesus, as the first and last, as the sovereign king, he already knows, doesn't he, precisely what's about to happen with his church at all times. Amen? He knows precisely what's about to happen with us. And what was about to happen here in Smyrna? Well, the verse continues. Here's what's about to happen. Behold, the devil, notice, is about to throw some of you into prison. What do we notice here? We notice, first of all, that there is a subset of people in the church who are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you will be thrown into prison. Not all of you. Some of you. And the one who is doing the imprisonment is who? Is the devil. Again, Daryl Johnson makes a very interesting observation here. He says, just imagine, if you were on the ground in Smyrna and you were watching Christians being rounded up and taken away and put in prison, what you would see with your eyes as you're watching, you would see perhaps some Roman police And you would see some of the Jewish people, perhaps, who were mentioned in verse 9 from the synagogue of Satan. You'd see them cheering as the Christians are rounded up and being taken away. What we would not see is the devil. We would not see him with our eyes in that moment. We would not see the one who is ultimately responsible for the imprisonment of the Christians. So that what Jesus is saying here in this verse, in the words of Johnson, he is saying that things are not as they seem. Friends, there is more to our reality than meets the eye. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. What we see with our eyes may not be the full representation of reality. But watch the very next words of verse 10. The devil's going to throw you into prison. Why? That you may be tested. 
So the reason that the devil will be allowed, allowed by God, to throw these believers into prison is so that God may test them. God may test them. God is going to use this strategy of the devil. He's going to use this to test his people, to prove the character of his people. God is going to override the scheme of Satan, and God is going to use this imprisonment for his glory to test his people. And a question that God is going to be posing to the believers is this, a question that would sound like this. He he would be asking, when everything has been stripped away from you, Christian, and you find yourself locked up in a cold prison cell for my name, will you treasure me? Am I indeed your security and your hope and your life? Isn't this verse a challenge to us? And I pray that the Spirit will increase and expand our love to Jesus Christ and our treasuring of Him. Jesus continues in verse 10, How many days will you have tribulation? Ten days you will have tribulation. Again, friends, as the first and last, Jesus knows everything. He knows exactly long how long Smyrna's tribulation is going to last. The tribulation of this church will be limited to ten days. And here there's an obvious, if we're doing biblical theology, which we love to do, there is an obvious reference back to the book of Daniel. And specifically, Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, where Daniel and his three friends, if we remember, were going to be tested for how long? Ten days. Ten days without eating the choice food from the king's table. The problem with eating choice food from the king's table in Daniel chapter 1 was that doing so would be a sign that you were loyal to the king. And since King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon considered himself to be a god, it was not going to be possible for the four young Jewish men to eat his food and show their loyalty to him. Doing so would blaspheme Yahweh their God. So this is all the background of 10 days here in Revelation 2 verse 10. The church in Smyrna would experience this 10-day tribulation. Why? Because like Daniel and his friends, they too as a church were refusing to bow to the pressure of reverencing and worshiping foreign gods with their exclusive loyalty being to King Jesus, the church in Smyrna refused to show worship to Caesar. Caesar considered himself a god, and they would not bow to the Roman gods despite the pressure. Now, we've noted already that the first command, the first prescription to persevere for this church was to not fear, do not fear. Now, at the close of verse 10, we get the second prescription. 
The second command, Jesus says to his church, he says to you and I, right now, be faithful unto death. Crushing pressure all around, yes. Pending suffering about to come, yes. Imprisonment and tribulation for 10 days, yes. But be faithful, says Jesus, be faithful to me even unto death. What's he saying here? He's saying that I, Jesus, am more important than death. I am worth dying for. And your imprisonment for me, says Jesus here, implies Jesus here, your imprisonment may not end with your release back into your former life. It may end with your death, with your being martyred for my sake. Be faithful unto death. I am the one, says Jesus, who died on the cross in utter, total faithfulness to my Father. I died, yes, and I came to life. And to you, Christian, to you who stays faithful unto death for his sake, there is a promise. And here comes the promise. Jesus says, to you who stays faithful unto death for my sake, to you I will give what? The crown of life. Your martyred self will be raised to eternal life to stand on the podium having finished your course there to receive the Stephanos, the crown, the laurel wreath of life, eternal life. Hallelujah. And then the passage wraps up, verse 11. He who has an ear, if you are an elect believer, born again by the Holy Spirit of God, taking Jesus by faith, you have an ear. He who has an ear, let him hear, let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, conquers what? Well, in the context of the church of Smyrna, the conquering this week has to do with remaining faithful to Jesus through pressure, remaining faithful to Jesus through suffering, through imprisonment, through slander, through poverty, even through dying. We conquer by remaining faithful to King Jesus even through intense hardship and even through death. And Jesus adds to the promise here by saying this to us, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now the worst that the Romans could do, and they were very creative with their methods of torture and putting people to death. Just think of the cross that came out of Roman Ingenuity is one word we could use for that. The worst the Romans could do to the church members of Smyrna was to kill them. The first death. 
But the first death, should it happen, would only be the pathway into eternal life for those who remained faithful to Jesus Christ. The second death that Jesus mentions here, we don't have to look far to understand what it is because it's explicitly described in Revelation 20 verse 14 where it says that the second death is the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14. The second death happens to the unbeliever after the first biological death. For the person who has refused to follow Jesus Christ in this life, they will die the first death, just like the rest of us will, but then the unbeliever will experience the second death, which is eternal banishment from the presence of God. But to the person who remains faithful to Jesus up to death, despite the crushing pressure, despite suffering, despite hardship. He or she is going to be spared the second death and will find himself or herself embraced eternally by Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Now, friends, I want you to listen very carefully. The kind of faithfulness to Jesus that is commended in the passage this morning is never going to happen. I want you to listen very carefully. It's never going to happen for the person who relies on herself or himself to work up faithfulness to Jesus. It's never going to happen. The kind of faithfulness that Jesus requires from us will never happen if we are relying on our own willpower and our own strength to make the faithfulness happen. No, the kind of faithfulness unto death that Jesus requires from us will only happen, listen, only happen if we consistently hold out our empty hands in our weakness and in our brokenness to receive the enablement and the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful. God gives the power to do what He commands. Amen? He gives the power for us to do what He commands. His strength given to you is your only hope to be faithful in the way that He requires. Well, let's wrap this up. There was a man named Polycarp who had personally known the Apostle John. Again, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, including the seven letters that we're studying. John had written those. John had discipled Polycarp. Polycarp had sat under the teaching of John. And eventually, Polycarp became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. No doubt, Polycarp had read the book of Revelation, written by 
his mentor and friend, the Apostle John. No doubt, Polycarp had been encouraged as he read Revelation, the passage we're studying today, as he read that passage that encouraged him to be faithful to Jesus unto death. No doubt he was encouraged by that. Well, in the year 155 AD, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was rounded up by the authorities for failing to declare Caesar as God. Several times the authorities asked Polycarp to declare Caesar God and to deny Jesus Christ as Lord, and each time Polycarp refused. The 86-year-old Polycarp then found himself in an arena about to be put to death before onlookers for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He was to be burned to death. The account of his martyrdom recalls his entrance into the arena, at which point, as he comes into the arena, he and other believers that were there heard a voice from heaven encouraging Polycarp to be strong and to play the man. God was with him in his crisis, strengthening him and empowering him to remain faithful. Amen? As they stood in the arena, the executioner pleaded again with Polycarp, deny Christ. And Polycarp replied, quote, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? Well, friends, eventually the wood pile was arranged with Polycarp in the middle of it, and they were prepared, the executioners were, to fasten him there with nails. But Polycarp said to them this, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the pile. (laughs) Friends, Polycarp knew that Jesus was there with him in his crisis, enabling him to be faithful. Polycarp looked up to heaven and communed with the Lord in thanksgiving, thanking Christ for the honor of being numbered among his martyrs. Polycarp communed with his Lord in his crisis and the Lord with him. And the fire raged. And the believers who were present there reported that the smell of the fire was a sweet smell, as if frankincense or precious spices had been burning. Polycarp of Smyrna was faithful to Jesus unto death, and Jesus was faithful to Polycarp up to and after Polycarp's death. Polycarp, listen, would die for Christ but Polycarp would also die with Christ and then be given the crown of life. Martyrs 
who are faithful to Jesus have Jesus standing by them, communing with them, supernaturally strengthening them, and then ushering them to the podium where they receive the crown of life. Amen? We are not left to work up faithfulness on our own. And so finally, to the church of Jesus Christ, I say to you, fear not. Your lives are bracketed, boundaried by the first and the last, by the one who died and came to life. And should persecution come to our land, to our church, then be faithful unto death in the power supplied by our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful and so amazed by your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness and the strength that you provide. Lord, especially if we have been believers for a while, you show us how weak we really are on our own. And and the fact that the power and the strength must come from you. And we thank you for supplying it. And I pray for each and every one of these dear people listening that you would supply your strength and your power and your grace for each and everything that each person is going through. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.